Today, I'm speaking with McKenna Latinsky. McKenna is a graduate student in anthropology at the University of Wyoming. She specializes in zooarchaeology, the study of ancient animal remains from archaeological sites. We discuss Ice Age hunters of the High Plains, emerging methods in archaeological science, an experimental archaeology project on the controversial site of Bluefish Caves, among other things. McKenna's research is a great example of how new and creative methods can help us pull more information out of ancient bones. Without further ado, my name is Sebastian Weatherby, and this is The Tell. Hi, McKenna. Thanks, Hi. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for interviewing me. I'm super happy to see you again. Gosh, it's been so long. <laughs> it has been a while. Yeah. I wanted to start by noting for the audience how much of a prodigy you are. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> when did you start undergrad? What age, if I may ask? <laughs> yeah, so I'm definitely a non-traditional academic student. Um, I was homeschooled most mm -hmm. of my life, and I graduated high school at 16, and then I started college that same age. Um, and I graduated undergrad in two years, meaning I graduated with double majors and a minor. Um, in two years? Of, yes, at the age of 18, so. And then you started your master's at 18? Yes. And you are now 20 and finishing your master's? Yes, <laughs> I and am. And going straight into a PhD? Correct, yep. I'll start the PhD program in the fall. And what made you go into archeology span and and especially since you're kind of becoming a zooarchaeologist in particular, what, is, what does zooarchaeology mean to you? And like, why did you go down that route? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. So um, like most people in anthropology, you take your first intro to archaeology or anthropology class and you get hooked very quickly. Um, at first, I didn't know that I wanted to go into archaeology. In fact, I wanted to go into something known as neuroanthropology hmm. and study nature's benefits on the brain. So kind of looking at people closer to mountainscapes and landscapes, yeah. seeing how their brain activity might differ from people that spend the majority of their time in cityscapes. Yeah. So Kind of Moving where... from one air-conditioned box to another. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's kind of what I wanted to do going into my undergrad, but then a professor advised that I take an archaeological field school because I, as part of my education, had to undertake an internship opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so I got my undergrad from Maryland, so I'm from the East Coast. Yeah. And when I took my field school, I just remember the first day I was actually out in the field and digging. Mm -hmm. And I found my first artifact. It was something super simple, like a brick or a nail or something, because yeah. it was a historical archaeology field school. And I was amazed. I was so excited. And I was like, yep, I'm changing my directions. And this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. But now so. you're working on Ice Age. Sites. I am, yes. So there's been a bit of a shift from the historic stuff that you first kind of dipped your toe in with. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to my interest in zooarchaeology. Mm -hmm. So as part of my undergrad during the summer, I took the University of Utah Zooarchaeology Field School um, with Dr. Jack Broughton. I was mainly studying domesticated animals, so cows and pig and sheep. Um, over time, that got kind of boring, just looking at the same animals over and over yeah. again. 
And so when I applied to graduate school, I knew that I kind of wanted to expand my variety of taxa. Zooarchaeology is one of those topics that I think, well, when it, during undergrad, I remember kind of knowing what it was, mm. but finding it kind of boring. Because my thought was sort of like, well, but there's burials and there's stone tools and there's iron tools and there's fortifications and temples and all sorts of other things that I could find really cool and exciting doing archaeology. <laughs> so why would I care about like a fox bone? Right. But it's one of those, I feel like it's one of those topics in archaeology where the more you dive into it, the more you realize how big it is and understudied it is. You know, like how the whole story of civilization is bound up in domestic animals and, and going right back to being a hunter-gatherer um, in the Pleistocene, where your your whole life is bound up in these sort of seasonal cycles of like following game and taking cues from the environment on when you need to go here and harvest this resource and when you need to then move again. And Yeah, one of the reasons why I love studying animal remains is because one of my majors in undergrad was environmental studies. Mm -hmm. So I was very interested in this human environmental interaction. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about zooarchaeology is it's not constrained to a specific time period, like certain stone tools, like certain ceramics are. Right, yeah. And so... Because of that, I feel like it's applicable to so many different archaeological sites, to so many different contexts. And I don't know, it's just, it's fascinating to me to also think about how these animals that even might be naturally existing on the landscape, how that can inform us about the environment and um, the ways people were interacting with their ecosystems. Yeah. And that, it kind of goes also to kind of the methodological side of zooarchaeology, because really what you're like what you're a specialist in is studying bones. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think that will tie this conversation together is I wanted to introduce to the audience something called the curation crisis and a related issue, which is uh, there was a paper published in 2017, I think, called The End of Archaeological Discovery. And the authors found that basically across a variety of different kind of categories of archaeological site, whether it was like Maya city centers or shipwrecks, all sorts of things, the rate of discovery is dropping precipitously. And why shouldn't it? Because it's a, an archaeological site is a finite resource. And when you dig up a site, you destroy all of the context associated with it. And so as all of these sites get dug up and the number that are still out there to be studied with modern methods drops, you also get these huge bloating collections in museum repositories. And if you've got a site at the Smithsonian and nine out of 10 of the cabinets that the artifacts are in are just bags stuffed to the point of exploding with <laughs> pieces of animal bone. Right. Like you really need to be able to get as much information as you can out of, out of those bones. Yeah, definitely. I feel like with a lot of my research projects that I'm focused on, mm -hmm. I try to approach these collections, um, whether they're bones or um, just another material cultural item, and try to get answers to new questions. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also try to test old theories and hypotheses with these data, too. So one of the things, one of the techniques that you're using for your thesis is called Zooms or ZooMS, and it's quite cutting edge. Would you introduce it? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm pursuing this technique known as Zorchaeology by Mass Spectrometry, or the acronym Zooms. And basically, it's what we call a proteomics-based method mm -hmm. that uses peptide mass fingerprinting to differentiate between animal taxa. 
basically you have a little piece of bone mm -hmm. and you could either take bone that you can identify to some higher taxonomic level mm -hmm. or a bone that you completely don't know what it is. Yeah. Like you could label it traditionally as unidentifiable. Then you can extract a very small amount of bone powder from that bone and then you put it in hydrochloric acid to basically separate out the mineral component of the bone from the collagen. Because yeah. it's yeah. really the collagen that you want in terms of peptide mass fingerprinting. Mm -hmm. um, from there, you can remove the humic acids, you can denature that triple helix structure of the collagen, and then that allows you to digest that collagen in an enzyme known as trypsin, mm -hmm. which is actually found in a pig's stomach. When you put it in the incubator, it actually replicates like pig's stomach digestion, which is kind of creepy and cool to think about at the same time. Yeah. So what the trypsin does is, so you have a long protein chain of collagen, right? And it basically targets specific amino acids, mm -hmm. and it cuts up that protein into smaller bits called peptides that are of a certain mass and length. Um, once you do that, you can spot it onto a plate, and then you run it through a very specific mass spectrometer, and it's a mouthful. It's called a MALDI-TOF, and it stands for <laughs> Matrix-Assisted Laser Desorption Ionization Time of Flight Mass Spectrometer. From there, it results in a series of peaks on a screen. Basically like a spiky-looking graph. Exactly. I kind of think of it as a barcode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's really where those peaks are falling on the x-axis mm -hmm. that allows you to compare the archaeological unknown bone yeah. to a spectra produced from a known animal. I think right now we have just over 54 spectra um, from different animals in mm -hmm. our growing library of known database at the University of Wyoming. Yeah. And we kind of compare the one archaeological unknown spectra to all of these different animals to identify it down to lower level taxonomic um, levels. And I think people probably won't at first appreciate how useful that is in so many different archaeological contexts. So normally when you're identifying animal bones at a site, or, or people bones for that matter, you have to identify the species, maybe, and you want to identify what element, what part of the skeleton. And to do that, you need a pretty big piece of bone that has diagnostic landmarks, things that you can say are like, you know, part of like the distal end of a humerus or something. But if you don't have those things, like if you have like a tiny piece of bone, like a little chip the size of your thumbnail, then it just goes in a big pile and it's the unknowns. But if there's a giant pile of bone chips and you can suddenly pull identifications out of all of those, that does a ton to what we can say about hunter-gatherers, about pastoralists, and even right up until the present day, basically. It, it, it does so much to the amount of information that we can pull out. Yeah, I, I would say this technique is very useful in highly fragmentary assemblages um, like the ones you were talking about. Like just some examples that I can think of in my research. Um, so my master's thesis research is focused on analyzing microfauna from a mammoth camp and kill site known mm -hmm. as Laprel. And almost all of that assemblage is highly fragmented. Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple complete molars, but otherwise it was very incomplete. Um, and so from that assemblage, I was able to try to test ideas of, okay, from my traditional osteological identifications, am I misidentifying these because the fragments are so small? 
So that's just one example I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is I'm working on a paper with Charles Koenig and colleagues, mm-hmm. and it's focused on what's known as the Debard Earth Oven, and it was found in the Laramie Basin. And out of that earth oven, a couple fragments of bone were recovered, mm-hmm. and we didn't know what they were. And so from those two fragments of bone, I was able to confidently identify them as bison. And yeah, there's endless examples like that of, you know, we found this cooking feature. What were they cooking? We found this bone tool. What animal did they use to make the bone tool? Right. Um, it, <laughs> let's talk about lapel a little bit um, since, yeah. since you touched on it. So. The Laprelle Mammoth Site, it's a Clovis period Ice Age campsite in Wyoming where people killed and butchered a mammoth. They set up a camp. And I think people at first would hear a topic like microfauna. Mm-hmm. At first, they're not going to know what that is. Yes. Which is small animals. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then they're going to say, well, why do you care about the boring small animals next to the super cool mammoth at this site? I get that question a lot. <laughs> um, what kind of drove me to study the small animals at Laprelle is this bigger debate within Clovis archaeology mm-hmm. known as the generalist versus specialist debate. Mm-hmm. So it focuses on the extent to which early paleo-indigenous peoples either preferentially targeted large animals on the landscape, mm-hmm. such as the mammoth, as well as some bison and mm-hmm. other large ungulates that were also yeah. found at Laprelle, or if these hunter-gatherers in the past were expanding their diet to include these smaller animals like rodents and rabbits to ensure their survival based on caloric needs. It would be important to know if these people were just targeting large animals and ignoring others because I think a paper written by Byers and Yuzhin in Mm -hmm. 2005, they argue that 27 deer, 7 bison, and over 620 hair-sized animals and smaller are found on the landscape for every one mammoth. Right. So these mammoths are extremely rare on the landscape, um, Mm -hmm. but uh, Todd Suravel and Nicole... um, Wagusback? Wagusback, yes. They argue that even though these animals are rare on the landscape, Mm -hmm. they're the most abundant taxa in Clovis archaeological assemblages. Mm So they're basically arguing this suggests a high degree of specialization. Um, They're totally ignoring the small animals. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I'm coming from in my thesis, is I'm looking at these small animals to provide a new lens through which we can try to determine, are these small animals natural or are they cultural? And how does that inform our interpretations of what these people were doing on the landscape? And it's sort of a foundation, I feel like, to so many broader questions about trying to imagine Ice Age life or just hunter-gatherer life, Mm -hmm. whether people are following these much more mobile large game, whether they're kind of just doing it opportunistically when they bump into them, or whether they're like actually flowing with the animals around the landscape, you know, whether they need to do like group cooperative hunting, whether the hunting is gendered, whether, Mm -hmm. uh, like there's all sorts of things that that build up on kind of the foundation of like what are hunter-gatherers eating. And um, it kind of informs the public's interpretation of mm-hmm. Clovis culture in general. Because yeah. if you look up, you know, Clovis people online, you automatically get these elaborate paintings of people hunting mammoths. Yeah. You don't get any pictures of people um, or paintings depicting people hunting small rabbits. Yeah, I've so, never seen a, a, a painting of a... 
Yeah, like a Clovis person setting a snare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Going back to how these people were hunting mammoths, why would they choose to hunt these mammoths on the landscape, even mm-hmm. though they're rare? Yeah. Um, can I go, I'm going to go on a little tangent here. If you think about Clovis hunter-gatherers and put your mind in their place on mm-hmm. the landscape 13,000 years ago, mm-hmm. you have these mammoths, but even though they're rare on the landscape, they're very large. Mm-hmm. And so when you're thinking about hunting rabbits versus mammoths, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to see that mammoth on the landscape from a much longer distance away mm-hmm. compared with a rabbit, which is also faster, by the way. Mm-hmm. So because these mammoths are highly visible on the landscape, it reduces search cost in terms of human behavioral ecology. Yeah, yeah. So that's one aspect is that reduced search costs because they're large. But another aspect is, as you had mentioned before, possible communal hunting. That reduces handling costs, meaning Mm -hmm. the time that it takes to actively hunt that mammoth, make sure it's dead, and then process it. Yeah. And there's also the advantage of not just processing this huge mountain of meat but also of having the ivory and the bone and the hide. And yeah. it does come with a bunch of other kind of secondary resources that are really awesome to have. So uh, at Laprel, your goal has been to figure out whether they're killing the small animal bones that came out of the ground. Is that the, the sort of initial gist of it? Yeah, so that's the goal is trying to test are these animals naturally existing at the site? Yeah. Um, obviously, I mean, people are going to interact with these animals on the landscape, but they probably didn't eat them or consume them if they're natural, right? So what kind of testing are you doing? How do you how do you get at that? Yeah, so I'm looking at it from a couple different variables. To preface that, I kind of want to highlight Cannon and Meltzer's paper Mm -hmm. um, that they wrote in 2002, where they argue that there are several sites that have strong evidence, quote unquote, for Mm -hmm. microfauna subsistence use in Clovis sites in North America. I'm going to flip to my page. Yeah. So one of these sites is Shawnee Minisink. Uh-huh. I argue this can be completely ruled out because the supposed fish bones at this site turns out they're not actually fish bones. They were actually black paint. Chips. Wait, what? Oh, okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> all right, all right. so these supposed fish bones are, are not bones at all, but rather they're chips of black paint. Mm-hmm. So that site can be completely ruled out. We also have Bull Brook. And according to Cannon and Meltzer's definition of small animals, um, my analysis excludes them. Then we have Kimswick, right? Uh-huh. Which, yes, there's microfauna recovered from this site, but there's no clear evidence that the remains are cultural. Mm-hmm. And they also propose um, different sites like Blackwater Locality with turtle plastrons. But even at this site, while they argue that people were eating the turtle, mm-hmm. there's no clear evidence of them pursuing virtually any other taxa at the site. I would argue that the strongest evidence and site that they proposed in their paper is the Aubrey site located in Texas on the Trinity River. Mm-hmm. And basically, it is a, a very interesting site. There's an abundance of artifacts. It's definitely cultural. Mm-hmm. But they make the argument that these people were consuming the microfauna based on a single variable, and that's burning. Ah. So they argue that because microfauna are burned to varying degrees, with some being charred black and others being calcined white, meaning exposed to very high temperatures, Hmm. they're making the argument that based on that alone, they are 
consuming these microfauna. Granted, they also argue that there is a bit of clustering towards a hearth feature, but they don't do uh -huh. that in terms of density analysis, yeah. spatial dimensions, So I guess that kind of goes to then the follow-up question. If burning isn't enough, what criteria would you look for? And what is the spatial component, especially? Absolutely. So first, I look at the spatial densities of microfauna remains. Mm -hmm. So at Laprelle, there are two different hearth-centered areas, one in block D and one in block B. Mm -hmm. There's another in block C, but I excluded these remains from my analysis just due to time constraints. Yeah. So I look at the microfauna densities in relation to burning distributions, mm -hmm. both horizontally on the landscape and vertically on the landscape. So I separate out which bones are burned at the occupation surface, yeah. which is determined by high densities of lithics and bone, versus non-cultural elevations. Yeah, um, yeah. So above and below that occupation surface. Mm -hmm. So that's my second line of evidence. And then my third is just looking at the representation of taxa in general. So trying to understand are there differences or similarities between the taxa represented at mm -hmm. the occupation surface right it's going to be different the from the background noise of just the exactly. normal natural balance of whatever species are in the area yeah exactly yeah. so that's something that was kind of interesting in terms of my thesis findings mm -hmm. is that at the occupation surface there are only three rabbits and hares that were recovered across all three of the excavation blocks that i analyzed both blocks a b and d hmm. But at the non-cultural levels, there were 30 rabbits and hares across all of those blocks recovered. Huh. And I would like to argue that this completely contradicts the Byers and Nugent model, which argues that so many of these so, smaller animals should have been yeah. represented. <laughs> There's actually a lower concentration mm -hmm. relative to the background noise at the cultural level. Exactly. And, and so then I guess... The zooms in this context is really just helping to kind of give you that taxonomic fidelity that you need to like do all of the spatial analysis, right? Yeah, it's sort of to supplement my taxa identifications. Mm -hmm. So I feel like you shouldn't rely on one or the other solely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now that we have this technique where we can look at their actual collagen, that helps to supplement are um, kind of naked eye observations of what the osteological markers are. Trying to triangulate a little bit or like, yeah. like bifocal vision to be able to see something clearly. Exactly. Last I talked with you about this, you were also thinking about the sort of environmental reconstruction possibilities. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you can get a bit of a picture of the environment around Laprelle? Sort of. <laughs> so for my paleoenvironmental reconstructions, mm -hmm. I looked at the rodent molars because I knew that through the elaborate enamel ridges and folds, mm -hmm. I could distinguish between taxa. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at a little over 300 rodent molars, and I could only get 15 down to species level. All of those 15 are yeah. either montane or long-tailed bull. Longtail and montane vole prefer cool and moist habitats in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. um, based on other paleoenvironmental data recovered from Laprell, we can say with some level of certainty that the environment was probably wetter and cooler on average oh, okay. with a mix of grassy and forested vegetation. 
but based on my limited data availability for my thesis, I'm kind of arguing that it fits into the current riparian ecosystem at mm, Laprelle. Yeah. Just the fact that it's located along that creek, there's trees there. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at in terms of my environmental reconstructions. If you don't mind now, let's pivot to another project that you've been working on. So to give people some context, if you're interested in Ice Age Beringia, Alaska plus Siberia and the land bridge connecting them, you definitely want to know where all the oldest sites in Beringia are. And on the Alaskan side of the Bering Sea, the oldest potential site by a long shot is a site called Bluefish Caves, which is in the Yukon Territory. It's near the Porcupine River, right? Mm-hmm. In kind of like a limestone-rich section of hills. And, 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 and the identification of the site, which I think is like 24, 25,000 years old, according to the most recent version of the dates. Yeah, and um, that was based on a mandible, a mm-hmm. horse mandible. Walk me through what they found at Bluefish Caves and why you would or wouldn't think that it actually is evidence of people in Ice Age Canada. So in the younger strata, I would argue that that's cultural because Mm -hmm. we have real microblades, we have real debitage. That's like late Pleistocene, right? Like 13,000 BP or something? Yeah, that's late Pleistocene. But in the lower level strata, we have what they call micro debitage, even though I'm very skeptical of that. Um, Tiny, tiny fragments of stone. Yes, very tiny. Um, And along with that, they have bones. Mm -hmm. Um, They have ungulates, oscoxa bones, and then a horse mandible. Mm -hmm. They radiocarbon dated those bones, and that's where they get that 24,000 date from. Mm And they argue that there's cut marks on those bones. There's Aha, so people have butchered these animals and they were camping there and eating them. So they think. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's the initial paper and that's what they argue. Yeah. Based on these linear striations on the horse mandible and that ox coxa. Which would then be the oldest site in the Americas, except for the 50,000-year-old rocks in South America that were actually produced by monkeys and... <laughs> And uh, the Sruti Mastodon site that Neanderthals, where Neanderthals broke Mastodon bone, except they definitely didn't, and <laughs> it's just natural taphonomy. But exactly. Probably then the oldest site in the Americas. So it's potentially a, yes. It would be really important to know for sure if that's a site. <laughs> exactly. And that's where a critique against that paper kind of comes in. Mm-hmm. So um, Krasinski and Blong wrote a paper, and they argued three different major taphonomic processes might produce results that look similar to cut marks, but as a result of natural means. Yeah. So those three processes are rockfall, carnivore damage, and trampling damage. Mm-hmm. I love this as a... Because taphonomy is always like the... It gets the short end, short end of the stick for everything in archaeology. It's like everyone's least favorite topic, where it's yeah. like suddenly it's the most important topic. Exactly. <laughs> like yes. Taphonomy, knowing how artifacts end up the way they are when you dig them up after they've been deposited, that's so important to this. So you came up with a really straightforward way of testing the rockfall hypothesis. Right, yeah. So I basically pursued experimental archaeology to profile the taphonomy at Bluefish Caves 
but also to answer this broader question Mm -hmm. of whether rockfall events, when these rocks land onto bone, Mm -hmm. can produce marks that look similar to cut marks, or if we can distinguish them with certainty, meaning that we we can definitely tell them apart. Yeah. Um, The way that I did that, it's kind of funny, I had a little PVC pipe exhibit in the anthropology building for quite some time. Basically a pipe running down the shaft of a stairwell. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I did that just to kind of control the direction in which the rock could fall to ensure direct bone rock interaction. And um, so bone sits under PVC pipe in stairwell, person goes up, drops rock through the PVC pipe. Mm -hmm. It hits the bone in a bucket of sand. Exactly. And then you look at the results. Yeah, very straightforward. I chose sand to replicate replicate the lost sediments at Mm -hmm. Bluefish Caves. Um, just a kind of a finer grain sediment. Didn't you even choose the rock material to to mimic limestone, right? From as best as yeah. possible. Yeah, I I went out with a rock hammer and collected Madison limestone from an outcrop just south of Laramie. Yeah. Um, just because Bluefish Caves is located next to an actively eroding limestone ridge. Yeah. Which is where all of this ball material is coming from mm-hmm. inside the cave. So, and the the bones that I used are actually cattle long bones. So a mix of uh, femora and humeri mm-hmm. that I obtained from a local butcher. And they looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, you want 46 different cattle bones from me? And I'm like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> um, That's a weird request. Yes. But in addition to dropping these rocks on the bones, I also produced chert flake tools mm-hmm. using um, experimental flint napping, just yeah. super easy. And I produce cut marks on these bones too. Currently, do you feel like you've got a good conclusion for whether you can tell the difference? I do, yeah. In fact, uh, it's an ongoing publication, so I'm excited to kind of release these results. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working with um, a professor at CSU and we're gonna co-author together. And essentially what I'm finding is out of the 46 bones rocks were dropped onto, mm-hmm. Only three produced marks that look visibly similar to cut marks. So I say similar in that they don't look exactly like cut marks from my interpretation of them Mm -hmm. because the width and the depth of these marks is pretty large. A way that I'm going to quantify this is I'm actually making a couple trips down to CSU Mm -hmm. to use their Sensafar S Neox optical profilometer. Oh. (laughs) Yes, it's a very fancy machine. Very cool. Yes, but basically it produces 3D models of these cut marks to the nanoscale. And so I can get accurate width and depth measurements on these marks and statistically prove whether or not they look and measurement-wise are similar or different. So then I suppose the follow-up question, bringing this back to Bluefish Caves, is have the various researchers working on bluefish caves published morphological characteristics that you need to compare to? Yeah, so they have some measurements within their supplemental materials, Hmm. but I'm a bit skeptical of those results, actually, because they just used a microscope to get those depth measurements. Hmm. It's very difficult to get accurate depth measurements without using um, very specific machinery like this profilometer. Yeah. Like here at the university, I tried to get those depth measurements and the resolution was terrible. 
I also attempted to get the same measurements on cut marks using uh, photogrammetry, and yeah. the resolution was also terrible. <laughs> so, uh, yes, there are measurements available for me to compare it to, but ultimately, if I wanted to prove and say, yes, they are completely different from bluefish caves, yeah. then I would need to get those cut mark molds yeah, and yeah. use the same machinery, use that profilometer yeah. to test that hypothesis. So if you find that if you find that rockfall does not produce the same kind of cut marks that you see on the bones, then would you just kind of go down the line and try to like test the other two, carnivore gnawing and trampling? And how do you even test the carnivore gnawing? Do you just give a dog a bone? I think if we were to do experimental archaeology focusing on carnivore gnawing, yeah. we should focus on smaller carnivores, um, like foxes, for example. They're pretty right. prevalent in Alaska. Right. So we would have to find a way to find an animal similar to a fox with those razor-sharp teeth. Yeah. Um, because I feel right, like, like a wolf dogs... tooth is going to... Right, it's too blunt... Yeah, yeah, it would it would definitely leave that U-shaped cross-section, yeah. which is what a lot of publications proposed in right. Carnivore Gnawing. And that leaves trampling by ungulates. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I can imagine that because I spent a lot of last summer going over aerial photos of sheep in the Brooks Range in Alaska, hoping to find caves, basically, because they go up to high elevations. And I'm not actually sure what they do in caves, like little rock shelters and... But they'll, there's a lot of photos when people are doing aerial surveys looking for, for sheep populations where they, they're just hanging out up in the caves. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I could imagine a doll sheep or something stepping on a bone in a cave because mm. they're up there anyways. I'm not quite sure how that one would get ruled out. but You can just go ask some people here in Laramie, hey, can I borrow your sheep? And I'm just going to bury these under the ground and then have yeah. a stampede of sheep. One of because when I was considering which taphonomic event to profile, mm -hmm. I was debating between rockfall and trampling damage because I started this project in a lithic analysis class with Robert Kelly. Yeah. And he was like, oh, well, you can just go ask a rancher if you can borrow some cows in, in their field and just like bury the bones slightly below the yeah, surface like and a then little have bit of them, the protruding or something. Yeah, and then yeah. have a cattle drive, drive them over the bones, and then <laughs> produce results. So, I mean, it's possible. It's not the worst idea. It's one of those topics where it's like, I know to the average listener, it's going to sound insanely arcane and, <laughs> and weirdly detailed and like such a such a bizarre rabbit hole. But at the same time, it's like, it could decide whether this is the oldest site in the Americas. Exactly. Like, Just in a cool, nerdy way. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's sites like Bluefish Caves all over South Africa and, and Europe and Siberia. And it's, it's like actually useful for finding out where the first traces of Ice Age people end up being. And when you, when you have like such, such faint traces of people from so long ago, you kind of have to get off into the weeds like that. And you, you have to wring every drop out of the towel, so to speak. Exactly. Um, yeah, I definitely had to get creative for this experiment. But I mean, the implications and the findings yeah. just get us one step closer to understanding the puzzle of when people came to North America, how yeah. they came to North America, and possibly what resources they were exploiting off of the landscape. So it's, it's a fun project. I'm, I'm having a great time. <laughs> well, 
that might be a good place to end it on. With that said, uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time, McKenna. Gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of The Tell. Until next time. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to help me talk to more people in more places, please consider donating. You can do so on my Patreon as a recurring donor, as well as on my website if you'd rather do a one-time donation. The links are patreon.com slash sebastianweatherby and www.sebastianweatherby.com. Show notes are also available on my website, where you can find citations and comments and other relevant information about the things we talked about today. Thanks again for listening.